series created by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, focused on increasing science literacy through interactive conversations with scientific experts. It's changing our planet. It's affecting our foods. It's here to stay. No, we're not talking about a disease. We're talking about climate change and how you can make a difference. Hello, and welcome to Streaming Science. My name is Rachel Noe, and I'm your host for today's episode, Streaming Science, Climate Change, and Food. I'm excited to have the food doc himself with us today, Dr. Robert Hutkins. Dr. Hutkins is a professor of food science at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. He also writes as the food doc in the Lincoln Journal Star newspaper. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Hutkins. Glad to be here. So first off, tell me about your role as food scientist here at University of Nebraska. What's your research area? So I've been at the university for about 28 years. And initially I started working on fermented foods and the bacteria that live in fermented foods. And it turned out that many of those bacteria that are in fermented foods are also live in our intestinal tract and they do good things for us. And so I've kind of moved a little bit away from the food side into the gut side. And so these are bacteria that, that live there. They, they help us digest our foods and they protect us often against harmful other bacteria and keep us healthy. How did you get interested in that area? Well, like I said, I started working in fermented foods and pretty obvious why somebody would want to be interested in fermented foods, cheese and beer and wine and bread and so forth. Plus, there was the, the bacteria that grow in those foods are scientifically interesting and challenging. But then when we, we realized that those bacteria also had important health effects, then that became obviously interesting because it has a larger impact on, on human health. Very cool. So tell me how you became known as the food doc. I've always enjoyed writing, and I've enjoyed writing not just scientifically, but I've always enjoyed writing in, in the popular media. So I've written for newsletters and things in the past, and I got the idea of perhaps writing a newspaper column, and I talked to some, some colleagues over at the Lincoln Journal Star, and they said, send us some samples, and I did, and and they like them, and it gives me a way to be a little bit more creative and write in a way that's different from uh, from normal science writing. Let's me put, lets me introduce maybe some humor or sometimes just interesting things that I think that the consumers would would like, and they've responded pretty well. So I've been doing it for about five years, and it's it's continued to be a source of of pleasure for me. What are some of the strangest or most humorous questions you've been asked in your column? Well, I get asked a lot about um, people's. They, they want to know what what they should be eating, and I don't. I'm not a nutritionist or a dietitian, so I try to stick to the food science. Uh, but they'll ask me about things like the the the, the gluten free diets and so forth, and. And sure, I can't address that from as a nutritionist, but I know what gluten is as a food scientist, and I know what the, the gluten allergies are and the gluten reaction. So I can answer some of those questions. The, um, I just ha had one this past week that I was kind of hesitant to write, but I, I eventually decided I had to do it. It's probably the question I get asked the most, and it's, why does this food give me gas? And so I get that asked that question about once a week, it seems like. You could fill in the blank, onions, garlic, whatever it is. So I decided I was going to finally address that question, and it got a big response. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So let's talk about climate change and food. And to start off with, can you define climate change? Climate change are, the, are, the, are those conditions 
that occur over a long period of time that result in the climate getting warmer, areas suffering from drought, um, sometimes um, more severe events, floods, hurricanes. But these are, it's a gradual process of where, where the climate changes. And it's only maybe a degree or two, uh, but that can have a, a very dramatic effect on the planet. So is it affecting our foods? Well, it certainly is. So initially, um, maybe 20 years or so ago, uh, scientists thought that agriculture might not be so affected by climate change. After all, people involved in agriculture, farmers, have be, been dealing with climate changes and weather changes forever, for 10,000 years. There'd be good years and bad years, but we've now come to realize that even some of, some of our um, most important crops are sensitive to even that degree or two that I mentioned before. So for sure the, the, the main crops in the world, rice, corn, wheat, soybeans, are affected. But now we've learned that even some of the other crops that are economically important, cocoa, coffee, tea, wine, grapes, these are also affected. So how are they being affected by the changes? Probably the most important change is just our warm temperatures and dry conditions. Now, there are some parts of the world that where, where climate change increases moisture or makes things cooler. But for the most part, it's warming and drier. Plants need to have a certain temperature. They need a certain amount of water. So this causes stress on the plant, so the plant might not grow as well, so the yields could suffer, they might not have all the nutrients that they need to grow on. It will affect mainly yields, but, but even sometimes the ability of a plant to grow at all. So are there some foods that are more drastically affected by changes than others? In, the, in some of the tropical regions, cocoa and coffee are very important, not only to the rest of the world, but especially to the economies of those countries. Some of those, food, some of those crops require certain elevations and certain temperatures and certain moisture contents. And what farmers have been doing is going a little bit higher on the mountain to get to the right conditions, so they're going to run out of room. So there, some of those crops are probably more threatened than, than others. Mm -hmm. Could these products eventually become impossible to grow if the weather change, or the climate changes too much? So I wouldn't say that they'll be impossible to grow, but the area in which they're going to be able to be grown is going to get less and less. You know, we're in a, here we are approaching um, the year 2020, and scientists have been predicting that, that we're going to have to grow more food in less space as industrialization occurs, agricultural land is being taken over by suburbs and taken over by, by normal growth of the population. So we have less land, more crops are going to be needed to support the population. So this is a real, real challenge. Do you know if there's any new or indoor methods to grow some of the, the altitude-sensitive crops like coffee or cocoa? So I think that the indoor, in, indoor growing of, of crops is, is important, but we're talking about such large acreages that are necessary to, to grow, especially some of these cash crops, that I don't think that that's going to, to be too, too likely. I'm not an expert in that particular area, but I think, I think most of those kinds of operations are, are useful for some specialty crops, but coffee and, and cocoa are huge volumes of, of product. 
Are the cropping methods used to produce some of these crops contributing to climate change? That's a good question. So agriculture not only is affected by climate change, but agriculture could be responsible for some of the climate change itself. So how agriculture is practiced is important. Agriculture uses fossil fuels to drive the tractors and to drive the combines and to, and to, to, to grow and produce food. So they are a contributor and of course that's, no, that's now known and so there's efforts being taken to try to remediate and reduce some of the, the carbon footprint that agriculture contributes um, into the environment. Are there any other industries that are main contributors or bigger contributors to climate change? So of course anything that uses fossil fuels so is going to contribute to climate change and, and global warming and, and contribute greenhouse gases. So, of course, a lot of manufacturing does that. Um, even in agriculture, I haven't mentioned, but animal agriculture contributes to climate change because animals produce methane, and that's a, a greenhouse gas. So there are other industries, um, industrial processes that contribute to climate change for sure, uh, not just agriculture. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about biofuels. Um, first off, can you tell us what a biofuel is? So a biofuel is simply um, a, uh, a fuel that's derived rather than from, a, from a, a fossil fuel source, from petrochemical, for example, from something that's from corn or from soybean or something that we can grow biologically. So that's where the bio comes in. And simply a matter of taking the corn extracting the sugars from the corn, fermenting the sugars into ethanol or butanol or some other fuel, and then using that material in your car or to drive an engine. What are some of the common biofuels in use today? So the most important one is ethanol that comes from mainly from corn in the United States. In other countries, the ethanol might come from sugarcane, for example, in Brazil. So there's any any um, plant that has a lot of sugar to it, in the case of corn it's starch, in the case of sugar cane it's actually sugar, can be used to, to, um, as, a, as a source for the microorganisms to produce ethanol. So is there, um, like is ethanol the best biofuel or are there developing biofuels could, that could be more effective? So there are um, another um, uh, a source of a biofuel are, are oils, like soybean oil, that you can make diesel from. So those are also useful. And there's other oil seeds that you can make those oils, that you can collect those oils and make them into, into diesel fuel. The challenge for the biofuels is that, is that, and this is maybe going to be one of your next questions, is that these are also food sources. So the controversy or the debate is whether it's wise as a society to use crops that would be otherwise used as food and feed people and to convert those into a fuel to drive our cars and to, to maybe to heat our homes and to provide other energy needs. And so this is a, a, a serious scientific as well as a social debate. Um, and, 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 and 
this is going to probably continue as a debate, but it's it's worth discussing. So how does, well, how do biofuels, first off, affect the environment and impact climate change? So the the, the premise of the biofuel argument is that rather than dig up fossil fuels from, from beneath the ground and drill for oil, which then will contribute to to um, greenhouse gas production, because we're taking things buried deep within the earth and we're going to make carbon dioxide out of it, and that's going to lead to climate change. The, the, the counter-argument is we could just simply grow plants and they will be the source of our, we'll get energy from those plants and we won't contribute to climate change because those plants, there's a, a, a natural recycling of that carbon dioxide. Plants absorb it, we get the energy from it, and they produce it, and everything is fine. And that's a pretty good argument. They'd be renewable, um, and they would be m much more benign on the environment. So it's a pretty good argument, but it's with the caveat that it doesn't wouldn't take very much energy to convert those plants to a biofuel. So if it takes a lot of energy to make the plant into a biofuel, we really haven't gained anything. And that's one of the controversies now with corn into biofuel. It does take a fair amount of energy to convert that corn into a biofuel, plus the corn could be used as food. But there are a lot of other um, plant materials that are simply biomass. They don't have any food value. The corn stalks, for example, they're not edible. So there's no food value, but if we could take those corn stalks, corn stalks and convert them efficiently into a biofuel, then we've really gained something. Mm -hmm. Are there any, any uh, new biofuels like that that are in the pipeline to be researched? And sure. So that's a very active area of research here in Nebraska. Um, they're looking at all sorts of other biomass, weedy materials perhaps, that can be used as a substrate for the biofuel industry. So there's a lot of research on that around the world, looking at, at inexpensive sources of biomass that can be converted into ethanol. And I think that's probably the future. Corn is, was um, a logical source for now, um, but I don't think corn is going to be the long-term answer. Any idea how long it will take to get a new ethanol replacement? It's already underway. So there are already um, um, efforts leading to that. You know, it's interesting that, that sometimes current events impose themselves on, on science and on, on progress. So when, when, when gasoline and oil are cheap, it dissuades researchers and researchers not just at universities, but researchers at an industry to devote resources to this problem. And it's been kind of cyclic, so when gas prices are high, money comes into the research area to try to find new sources. But when prices are real low like they are, um, people wonder, well, maybe there's not a problem. 
But this is a, this is a very temporary um, current event, if you will. Mm -hmm. so, so right now, I, I would have said seven or eight years ago, there was a lot of momentum. It's kind of slowed down a bit, but, uh, but research continues, and I'm sure that uh, probably... Um, I'm an old guy, but in your lifetime, you're going to see some big changes in the availability of biofuels. Mm -hmm. So what can humans or consumers do to slow down or mitigate climate change? Sometimes it seems like um, what an individual does doesn't amount for very much compared to um, you know, what we read about in, in, in China, for example, where people are walking around with, with gas masks on their face because they can't breathe the air. You think, well, what, what good is it going to do here in the United States if there's problems in China, India, and around the world? Um, there's some truth to that, perhaps. Um, but we can all act as an individual. So recycling, trying to reduce your own carbon footprint. And if enough people do that, there, there will be an impact. And so if kids in a school, for example, decide they're going to do a project and reduce, start walking to school to reduce their carbon footprint or re setting up recycling, using less water, using less natural resources in general. Then it, starts, it can start to add up and, and make an impact. So why should middle schoolers care about climate change? Well, they're the ones that should care the most uh, because they, they, they have a long life ahead of them. And... And, and they're going to be affected more than, than their parents or their grandparents because uh, what we do now to the, to the planet is going to be with us for a long time. There are, scientists have already said that what's done is done and it's reversing, it's, it's, it's the, the best course of action is to try to, to slow the pace of climate change. Um, we can't really reverse it for now. What's done is done. So we need to slow it down. So what can middle schoolers do to play their part in slowing down climate change? Number one, they need to, to study and learn and understand the challenge that's ahead of them. And even a middle schooler, I think, can understand some of the, the concepts and some of the principles involved in, in climate change. They know that they could, they could see um, the stories on TV about glaciers melting and polar bears without places to, to, to live. And I think they can appreciate some of that. Then they, then they have to take some action. And maybe it means doing a science fair project on climate change, or maybe it means doing some special reports. And eventually, I think once they understand, they can start acting on those interests and, who knows, maybe become a scientist. So is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know? I think a, a lot of misperceptions about the nature of science and the nature of things like climate change as a scientific issue. Just because there are scientists that might disagree about the causes of, of climate change and what we should do about it doesn't mean that it's not a real thing. We don't argue, most of us don't argue, about gravity, and we don't argue about the Earth orbiting around the sun. These are established facts, and I think climate change 
is an indisputable fact. And so we'd be much better off not arguing about the reality of climate change and spend our time doing something about it. Why should middle schoolers and both guys and girls get interested in careers in uh, STEM careers? Number one, it's challenging. And I don't know any young kids that don't like a challenge. You know, whether it's trying to make a three-point basket or you know, run faster, why not challenge them intellectually? I once heard a, a very famous scientist speaking about this very issue maybe 30 years or so ago, before there was STEM. He was talking about how a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old is fascinated by science, whether they go to the zoo or to the planetarium. They're interested, intrigued, fascinated by, by, by the world of science. And then 10 years go by, and they're 17, and they've somehow lost interest in science. And it becomes a hard subject for them. They don't want to, don't want to pursue a career in science or have much to do with science at all. A lot of college kids look at majors and, and say, what major could I take that I don't have to take science and math and physics and biology? And they might choose that major. So the question he asked is, what happens between 7 and 17 that a kid loses that interest? And this is the challenge for, for middle school teachers and for the public education system in general, is to make science as interesting as it is. You know, when you're 7, kids want to be astronauts and, and they want to do those sorts of things. And, and every kid nowadays has a device that they use the technology all the time. And so certainly kids are not afraid of technology. So it's a challenge. What can, what can the schools do to, to, to foster that interest? It's already there. So that's the challenge. I'm not an educator. I educate college kids. It's a challenge enough. Um, but it's a, it's a challenge for the, for, the, for the middle school teachers to try to keep those kids interested. They have the interest when they're seven. How do they, how do they, they, they maintain it and channel it so that they're still interested when they get to high school and then ultimately into college? That was a fantastic answer. Okay. <laughs> All right, last question. Where can our listeners go to find resources to learn more about climate change or their foods? Good, good questions. So there are, um, for the climate change, NASA has a great website, EPA, that's the United States Environmental Protection Agency, has a great website with, that's geared not only towards um, um, adult learners, but it has great material for middle school, for, for teachers, so that's a really good site. Um, answers a lot of, it, it's a question and answer, information, other links, so there are lots of really good websites. Um, PBS has some good websites. Uh, and just to show you how well connected this issue is to food, if you go to the Gates Foundation, which is devoted to protect, is, is devoted to trying to provide um, uh, healthy foods and healthy um, um, provide over, improve health of, of the developing world, they have good materials. All right, well, that's all the time that we have. Thank you, Dr. Hutkins, for the interesting conversation and for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Rachel. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to this episode of Streaming Science, Climate Change, and Food. I'm your host, Rachel Noe, and we'll see you next time.
Well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you again for joining us, Dr. Hutkins, and thank you, listeners, for tuning in to this episode of Streaming Science. If you'd like to learn more about our program or listen to more episodes, you can find us on our website at... Research shows that climate change is happening and your favorite foods may be at risk. What will you do to make a difference?